I'll just play it for you so you can hear. It was a lot worse earlier. That piercing sound is part of the mysterious illness that's taken on the moniker Havana syndrome. While the cause is unknown, those afflicted say it all starts with that sound. The U.S. Embassy in Cuba restarted full service earlier this month after being closed for nearly six years after staff started getting sick from it. Theories around the source of the sound range from something as alarming as a sonic weapon attack by foreign actors to a cause as mundane as crickets chirping. I'm Nyla Boodoo in for Jen White, and you're listening to the 1A podcast where we get to the heart of the story. Today on the show, we explore what we know about this illness and what questions remain. Let's get into our Havana syndrome discussion. The CIA is investigating more than a thousand reported cases of the sickness affecting foreign service officers in Russia, Cuba, and the United States. Before we get to the findings, let's introduce you to someone who's been suffering from these symptoms for years. Yesterday, we spoke to Mark Polymeropoulos, a non-resident fellow at the Atlantic Council. He served for decades in the CIA, eventually working as a deputy officer for the Europe and Eurasia Mission Center in Moscow. He began experiencing symptoms he believes to be related to Havana syndrome in 2017. Mark, thanks for being with us. It's great to be here. Thank you. Can you take us back to December 2017? You were working as a high-level CIA officer in Moscow. When did you start to experience headaches and other physical pain? So, so actually, I was the deputy operational chief for what we call the Europe and Eurasia Center. So this was a, a position based at headquarters where I had uh, oversight over CIA's clandestine operations from everything from, you know, Dublin, Ireland, all the way to the farthest reaches of uh, time zones of, of Russia. And so I actually made a trip to Moscow um, in late this or early December of 2017. And on one of the um, first nights at a, at a five-star hotel near the U.S. Embassy, I woke uh, uh, up in the middle of the night with terrible vertigo, splitting headaches, tinnitus, which is ringing in my ears, um, symptoms which which have lasted to this day, which is almost you know five plus years later. Can you pinpoint the start of your symptoms to a per specific day? Was it to that day? Absolutely. So I, I believe it was December fifth. Um, I woke up in the middle of the night. Um, you know, I didn't hear anything, but I woke up to just terrible vertigo. You know, the room was spinning. Um, if, if anyone has had vertigo, they'll know it's just this incredible feeling of, of you know, disorientation. It's, it's pretty scary. Um, I had a splitting headache uh, uh, and, again, ringing in my ears, felt physically sick, um, and I'd never felt anything like this. Again, I'd been, you know, shot at all over the world. I've had, you know, I'd lived in the, in the third world for, for many years, and, but this was, this was pretty terrifying. And, you know, I'd, you know, <laughs> consider myself, you know, relatively a, a you know, a, a pretty seasoned officer from, from doing a lot of tough work all around the world. But I was, I was admittedly, I was very scared because I just had never felt anything like this. And it was, uh, uh, it was, it was debilitating. Um, and it was something that, that unfortunately I had hoped would go away, but it did not. What happened when you reported your symptoms to your superiors? I was really deteriorating and I went to the CIA's medical staff and I said something really had happened to me. Um, and they dismissed it. Um, you know, uh, and, and at, at that time, you know, I, I said, look, there was, you know, I, I seem to have some of the similar symptoms to what happened to U.S. officials the year prior in 2016 at the U.S. Embassy in Havana, Cuba. But they gave me kind of a rudimentary check um, and, and, and dismissed, uh, uh, dismissed me. Uh, you know, so then I kind of went on a journey of seeing my private doctors, spending a hell of a lot of money as well. Um, for months and months, uh, all to no avail. But meanwhile, I was still asking the CIA 
to at least send me to a place um, where they were sending other victims. So in October of 2020, you went public in an article published in GQ magazine. How did CIA leadership respond to that story? I actually went and I told the senior leadership at CIA that I was going to go public. They were not surprised at this. Um, although when I did go public, there was certainly a, a, a you know a, a backlash uh, against the agency leadership. And in fact, you know, three former directors of CIA called me and then called our seventh floor and said, "Hey, you know, what the hell is going on here? Why are you not just giving Mark healthcare?" And ultimately, they relented and I and they they did allow me to go to Walter Reed. But um, it was just a, a pretty traumatic uh, journey. I wonder if I could just stop you for a minute. What was their response? to uh, the former CIA director saying, why don't you just get Mark Healthcare? Um, well, at that point, they relented right away because there is no response to that. But I'll tell you that internally, as I was um, asking them to send me to Walter Reed over and over again, their response, which was relayed to me, was uh, first that I, that, um, uh, that I was just trying to do this uh, you know, uh, uh, to make money. Um, and, and then they kind of changed their tune again and they said, well, I must have had previous you know, a precondi- uh, you know, a precondition um, from from prior service, but but ultimately it was really done in bad faith, and and you know that that you know caused for me not only the physical wounds, but it was also a moral wound as well, because again, it's a it's an organization I deeply believed in, I did a lot for, I still do believe in the mission of the agency, and I speak openly about my support of of the men and women there, but this was just a leadership fail because they didn't send me to a doctor. Simple as that. Why you'd have to ask them? I mean, there's an inspector general's report that's out right now that's classified. I don't have access to it, but I've been told it's pretty damning um, in in coming down hard on the agency for actually just quite simply not providing health care to those of us who really needed it. Mark, the first reported cases of anomalous health incidents, which we should say is the term the CIA uses for Havana syndrome, were reported in the fall of 2016, but they were kept secret. What did you hear from other and what have you heard in the years subsequent from other CIA officers and foreign diplomats suffering from similar symptoms? The officers I've met who were affected by this in Havana have have probably had it the worst. Um, these are, you know, former CIA case officers. In one case, it's a it's a, a former doctor um, uh, who went down to try to treat some of the victims, but who suffered really permanent disabilities to the sense of, um, you know, losing eyesight, um, losing cognitive abilities, losing the ability to walk, you know, without without aid, without the, the you know, with the use the, the or the requirement for a for a service dog because of just terrible vertigo, and so their lives were changed, and so. You know, it's been pretty dramatic. You know, as I as I've met them over the years. Now, I'll tell you, when I was at CIA, you know, it's it's, it's an organization that is stovepiped and compartmented. So we had all we had all heard that officers were being affected by something um, in Cuba. But I was a I was a you know at first a Middle East hand and then moved on to kind of Russia and Europe at the end of my career. But uh, you know, I think that that things were kept pretty quiet within the agency um, on this when it happened. And you know, again, uh, uh, why that happened. You know, it would, you'd have to go back to the what, what I just mentioned before, the inspector general's report and the reaction uh, of the agency, how they treated um, those officers who were, were affected. I don't think it's a it's a, a very positive story for the organization. You, you know, you did receive treatment eventually at Walter Reed Medical Center. How did that change the intensity of your symptoms? Uh, you know, and, and this is something where, I, you know, I get quite emotional talking about it because, my time at Walter Reed really changed my life. Um, it gave me two things. First, it gave me hope, and then it get, gave me tools. And you know, one of the interesting things about this is when we talk about going to their traumatic brain injury program, you know, they're not there to try to figure out what happened in terms of, you know, was it a directed energy attack? 
um, they are there to try to make you feel better. And so there, you know, I, I went, uh, I started off in a one month intensive program, um, for 10 hours a day. And there was 18 doctors and nurses and specialists. And I credit them for saving me, um, because I had, not only did I have, have kind of severe physical pain, um, uh, but again, it was the, it was kind of the mental health side of it when I went there and I didn't realize how bad I was, you know, every day when you arrive at Walter Reed, um, they ask you a question, you know, are you, did you, did you want to hurt yourself the night, you know, the, the day before? And my answer was always no. And I believed that. But one of the amazing things is they then interview your family members and my wife, um, who also was a, she's retired now. She was an agency uh, uh, case officer as well. And she said, a, said something very different. She said that she was really worried that I was going to try to harm myself. And I was, and based on my behavior and what I was saying, I didn't realize it. And so I was shocked. And in a, in an amazing um, part of my recovery was something called art therapy in which, you actually have therapists who are trained. Um, obviously, they're not just an art teacher, but you create these masks. And Walter Reed is famous for this. Um, it was they were on the it was on the cover of National Geographic in 2015. But but you paint a mask, you create this mask, and that's a way to express yourself. And for me, it was a mask where I painted the Superman kind of colors over it because that's what that's how my kids you know saw me with all my time and service. Um, but then I, I laid the mask over a, a piece of wood where it was the CIA seal was cracked in half. And that was the kind of the moral injury. And, and amazingly enough, both CIA director Bill Burns and national security advisor Jake Sullivan went to Walter Reed to meet with my doctors. And my doctors showed them the mask, which I think had a pretty profound effect. Because, again, this is not saying, you know, who did this, but this is saying we got to get our officers health care. What questions do you still need answered about Havana syndrome? Uh, the questions I have is what has the CIA done or is going to do to not, you know, not necessarily the, the senior officers who denied us health care, but just the system so this doesn't happen again. So that's number one. Um, number two is health care. You know, is the CIA going to continue to, to offer officers afflicted, uh, afflicted by uh, anomalous health incidents? Uh, you know, are they going to continue to offer health care like they finally did me? And that's important. And then the last piece has to do with, um, you know, with, with the culpability portion of it. And, and that's where I'm particularly disappointed because it seems to me that the agency has given up. That's where I'm right now. My, my application, uh, you know, for example, for the Havana Act compensation, um, which was a, it's an act of, of law that was signed by President Biden. You know, the agency has been sitting on this for five months. So they still don't even seem to, to acknowledge that despite they sent me, you know, while they sent me to Walter Reed, um, they still have not acknowledged that something has happened to me. So, you know, this this story has not been, you know, uh, uh, is not finished yet. Mark Polymeropoulos is a former CIA officer now working as a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council. Mark, we appreciate you being here. Thank you so much. Well, we're going to dive even deeper into the Havana syndrome with some new guests right after the break. Stay with us. Now let's bring some new voices into the conversation. I'm joined now by Nikki Wolf. He spent years with The Guardian U.S. covering politics and technology, and he's the host of the new investigative podcast called The Sound, Mystery of Havana Syndrome. The first episode is available now wherever you get your podcasts. He's joining us from the BBC in London. Nikki, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. We're also joined by Dr. James Giordano. He's a neuroscience professor at Georgetown University and the chief of its neuroethics studies program. He was hired by the State Department as a consulting forensic neuroscientist to investigate the initial Havana syndrome cases. Dr. Giordano, thanks for being with us as well. Thank you for having me. 
Just to note to our audience, we did invite the CIA and the State Department to join our conversation or provide written statements to our questions. The State Department did not respond before our deadline. We will read portions of the CIA statement throughout the program. It's been more than six years since the first reported cases of Havana syndrome. Here's State Department spokesperson Heather Nout speaking to reporters in 2017. I'm done with Cuba. Things get a little testy. Let me say this. Why are we just learning about this? This has been going on at least eight or nine months, and now we're just learning about this? Why? As a reporter, you're going to ask me that question? I mean, goodness, you could have been down there reporting on this. Look, people started experiencing ailments in late 2016, okay? And think about it. When you have an ailment, you don't always know exactly what's causing it. Some of these things take time to investigate, in particular ones that are people aren't certain what has caused them. We don't have all the answers yet. So I, I appreciate that you want to try to push me to say something. I'm not going to create, you know, storylines for you that don't match up with the facts as we know them right now. Nikki, why did you want to investigate this mysterious medical phenomenon years later? As we said, that was back in 2017. Yeah, and I feel a bit for Heather in that she, she did rather dangle a little bit in that press conference, didn't she? Um, it's just an intriguing mystery, right? And, and as it played out, um, the first statement from the State Department was that it was some kind of sonic uh, energy, I think, device was the word they used, um, the FBI had sent in an investigative team um, and had at first uh, said that there was nothing to what the State Department was saying. Um, all sorts of other investigations have found such a wide variety of different things that it was just this complete, unknown, intriguing thing. Um, and that attracted, to me at, uh, attracted me to it straight away because it's one of the great kind of unsolved mysteries in international geopolitics right now. Dr. Giordano, let's talk about what we do know. You've spent decades working with the CIA and other intelligence agents on neurological warfare. Can you explain how technology has been used uh, to enhance officers' mental capabilities or been weaponized against them over the past 30 years? Uh, Sure. I mean, if if we take a look at the way we can use the tools and techniques of the brain sciences, not only alone, but with a variety of other biotechnological and bioscientific methods, There's two ways we can approach this. Number one is we can augment or optimize the function of our own people. And this is whoever we may be, whether it is the United States and its international allies or international peer competitors. Or we could look to degrade or in some way disrupt the performance of peer competitors, hostiles, adversaries. And the toolkit to do this is as iterative as the technology and science is progressive. So the idea of being able to use a variety of different approaches that harness state-of-the-art technology that have a readiness level that allows them to be scalable, fieldable, operationalizable, basically represents the state of the engagement, or if you will, the state of the, quote, art, and certainly the state of the the nature of these types of both non-kinetic and kinetic engagements. And so when um, the CIA termed, um, as we're talking about this, uh, foreign diplomats and intelligence officers in Havana first began experiencing symptoms associated with what we're calling Havana syndrome back in 2016, the CIA termed them anomalous health incidents. Dr. Giordano, what was your role in the CIA investigation at that time? My role was being brought in by the Department of State as a consulting forensic neuroscientist to basically engage in a process known as abductive forensics. In other words, proverbially, we we didn't have an entrance wound. There wasn't an exit wound, but there was something going on in between. 
And my role was to examine not only the data coming directly from those individuals in Havana, but also metadata, data about the geography, architecture, environments, ecology, as well as these individuals' prior histories with regard to such things as pre-existing medical conditions or confusing one existing condition with another and or their prior records inclusive of their psychological records that might be indicative of at least some predisposition to a variety of different things. And then the role was to say, all right, given that, what's possible and from those possibilities what represent the highest probabilities of what could have happened to these people but unequivocally what came out of that is that something physical happened to these individuals in havana and so we got a tweet which is the question i think everyone really wants to know dr giordano do we know what the cause of this is Well, at this point, we have a a pretty narrowed view of what types of things could do this with the highest probability. We ruled out a number of things as well as trying to rule in a number of things. Could it have been pesticides or some other industrial, commercial, or environmental chemical? Yeah, there are a lot of things that could do that, but the pattern would be quite different. It would also be far more reproducible in a broader range of people, and there'd be traces of these things in these individuals' biosamples, and there were none. Is it possible that it could have been something they ate? Well, yeah, that's certainly possible. But once again, it would have to be at a fairly high concentration. Might it have been a drug? Might they all be taking some common drug? Might there have been some over-the-counter agent? Might they have been slipped a drug? There are a number of drugs that can do this, from things that are over-the-counter to things that are prescriptive to things that are experimental. Here, too, the problem there is finding artifacts, finding samples, and the doses would have to be higher and the effects that they would produce, not only in terms of the subjective symptoms, But the actual physical and objective signs would be quite different. The other issue is, is it possible they were exposed to some form of of energy, uh, a radiation source perhaps, or a microwave source, or, or, or a communication source? That remained a possibility. Is it possible as well? That it could be that various types of vermin-repelling ultrasonic devices could have been used. And there are. You can get these over the internet. They're commercially available. They're widely used in Europe and elsewhere to repel small mammals. And in fact, if you go online, you see these types of devices that can also be used for home defense against intruders. They deliver an ultrasonic pulse. For most animals, they find these things very, very uncomfortable. For humans, they find them very uncomfortable. And it's interesting that the patent for these devices, for long-range acoustic and ultrasonic devices, was first filed here in the United States back in 2003 and four. And then that was commercialized. It was commercialized from some work that had been done in the United States Navy and then commercialized to a larger industrial scale. And the initial component of of these devices is they did not have an acoustic register. In other words, they didn't produce sound. That was only added after the fact. Yet they were indeed disruptive because they produce effects in the inner ear and they produce a variety of effects both up and downstream from that. It can be very disruptive, very problematic, and very diverting of individuals' behavior. So yeah, is it possible that these individuals in Havana were subject to this? And benignly so. In other words, might it have been that Let's see if we can just keep vermin out of these people's private domiciles. Well, there was no custodial record. There was no provenance record. Yeah, it just sounds like there's so many questions here. Well, I'm asking you questions and you're raising more questions, right, Dr. Giordano? We should note a CIA report from last year argued there's no evidence that a foreign country was responsible for causing Havana syndrome symptoms. However, they're still investigating the cause of two dozen cases. And here's a portion of a statement from a CIA spokesperson responding to this investigation that we received. The statement reads in part, 
At CIA, we have no more profound obligation than to take care of our people, and our steadfast dedication to this issue is unwavering. We have expanded access to care and resources significantly, and in partnership with other intelligence and government agencies, we committed to undertaking the most rigorous investigation possible into reported anomalous health incidents. We assembled a large team of some of our very best officers focused exclusively on this issue with a commitment to following every single lead. Nikki, in the folks that you spoke to, do they feel like they are getting the health care that they need to take care of uh, their symptoms at this point? So in a lot of cases, very much not. Um, uh, the CIA is saying that their dedication has unwavered, is slightly undermined by the fact that it has wavered. Um, for example, after uh, one of the larger, after Havana spikes, uh, which is in Vienna, um, the CIA station chief there resigned after being criticized for um, not having taken these things seriously enough. And the US government in its response has been here and there. The Havana Act is uh, considered by a lot of the sufferers as being very much a move in the right direction. But there's still a lot of people, uh, especially as the cases have spread, who really feel like they've been left behind by the US government um, in in a way that, that is frankly, you know, indefensible in some cases. You spoke with Doug Ferguson. He and his wife, Kate, worked at the U.S. Embassy in Havana in 2016, and they were among the first State Department employees to come down with the illness. We wanted to play a little bit of that conversation. Here's Doug talking about Kate's condition and treatment. The process of doing the rehabilitation is very arduous and painful. So, you know, it's like when you're learning to walk again, learning to use your brain again in certain ways. It's, it's painful, it causes headaches and that kind of thing. So it's kind of traumatic to go through that. How were Kate and Doug treated initially by the State Department, Nikki? So what happened with Kate and Doug, and I think it's uh, interesting to mention that we heard Kate's story from Doug, um, which is because Kate is still so powerfully affected by this that she was, um, while willing to speak, kind of physically unable to be in uh, a room with electronics long enough for an interview, which I think is itself quite stark. Right, um, and that was the, true of another person that you also spoke with. It wasn't just Kate, correct? Yes, that's correct. Um, that's uh, Kevin and Karen Coates, who also both um, both hit, um, but Karen more severely uh, than Kevin. Um, but when they went to Miami for the initial uh, diagnosis, they measured uh, Kate Ferguson. They did a whole load of tests. They found that her retinas had, had detached, that there was ocular damage. Um, but didn't really know a huge amount more than that. And because this was early on, she got sent back to Havana, sent back to work, which is where she got hit for a second time, and then a third time. And then it's only after that, and only after the State Department and the other agencies start to take this more seriously, that she then gets medevaced out again and receives more long-term treatment at uh, the University of Pennsylvania. Um, but... All of the tests they were doing, and this came out in a lot of the academic uh, studies that were then done, were waited for just way too long. So uh, we spoke to David Relman, who led the National Academy of Sciences investigation, who said, look, um, by, by the time our investigation geared up, there was too much mess in the data. The brain scans didn't have before or after pictures. Everything was just very messy. So I think that's another way in which the government kind of trod on its own toes a little bit is just by taking so long to gear up this investigation, 
then it made finding answers really, really difficult. And that also meant for the victims, it took them a really long time before their situation was taken seriously enough for them to get the, the treatment that they really needed, which was the, the full-scale um, neurological rehabilitation. We got a tweet from Dr. Klatow saying, asking, have any of the local people complained of Havana sy- symptoms or was it only Americans working at the embassy who were affected? Nikki? There's no evidence that uh, any Cubans were affected. There was quite a serious outbreak uh, among the Canadian diplomatic community. Also in Havana, I think 15 Canadians were uh, taken and evaluated at a Canadian neurological hospital in Nova Scotia. Um, it does, and this is a data point that we that we look very closely at in the podcast, remain very highly targeted to largely the American diplomatic community, and that has remained true um, in a lot of ways as it's spread, although there's also a lot of allegations of um, civilians who've experienced it, which we'll, we'll get into a bit later once it's spread and is in the public consciousness. But, but yes, this was initially very highly targeted at uh, CIA officers and then highly targeted at American and those few Canadian officials, but it, it did not appear to have spread anywhere other than those targeted communities. Nikki, the sound State Department employees heard outside their homes in Havana has been a key part of this investigation. What's been the process of identifying that sound and distinguishing it from, say, insects? So this is a this is a really tricky part of this whole story, which is that um, Doug Ferguson um, and and his wife Kate heard the sound outside, recorded it. When that recording went public, it was heard by two entomologists, insect specialists at the University of California who quickly analysed it and discovered that it was the sound of the Indies' short-tailed cricket. Now, that led to a huge turning point in in the public narrative of this story, um, which is, oh, it's just cricket sounds. Okay, that must be it. And now that caused a a real mismatch here because there is no feasible way in which the sound of a cricket can cause any of these symptoms. So that... uh, may well be just a huge unlucky red herring in that what Doug recorded may well have simply been a cricket sound and that simply might be a coincidence. Um, And in fact has to be because, uh, again, it can't cause the symptoms. The problem is that the sound itself um, we think may be, uh, and we'll get onto this when we talk about the theories, but a sound that's being caused, if it is some sort of device, within the head. And so that would lead to the conclusion that that cricket sound was uh, was a coincidence. And, and in fact, when the State Department at first came out and said sonic weapon, the major sonic weapon hypotheses were under... Um, the, the problem with them were that an infrasonic or ultrasonic weapon, which the, the technology, is, um, as Dr. Giordano said, um, does exist. Ironically, being hit by either an infrasonic or ultrasonic weapon would not be experienced as audible sound there by definition outside of the audible range. So yeah, the actual sound itself has been a really key part of the investigation um, and has, has led people down a lot of blind alleys because um, at the beginning it was used very much to point towards a psychogenic hypothesis, the idea that this might be a mass delusion based around these cricket sounds. Um, right. And so a big part of this challenge has been to unpick all of that. Right. And I do want to get to that in a moment. But before we get to that, one theory has been the use of microwave weapon technology. Uh, Here's a clip from the podcast. Microbiologist David Reelman is explaining the findings of biologist Alan H. Frey. 
Frey had discovered that microwave radiation can cause the brain to experience a sound as if from within. And interestingly found that only some people were susceptible. So he would, you know, shine it on a bunch of people and some would hear it and some wouldn't. You clearly could produce sounds in the head that others didn't hear with pulsed radio frequency energy. Dr. Giordano, you believe microwave technology could be at play in some of these unexplained cases. Uh, We should note a CIA report from last year argued there's no evidence a foreign country was responsible for causing Havana syndrome symptoms. However, they're still investigating the cause of two dozen cases. But with the idea of that microwave technology, how would that work? Oh, first, let's move away from the attribution question, just as a good cause. The way a microwave would need to work is it would not have to have a thermal signature. You don't want to feel heat. And at first, back in 2017, we didn't know if that technology was ready. In other words, was it ready for deployable use? What we've learned is that, in in fact, there are microwave technologies here in the United States and among our economic allies in China and Russia that are being used for commercial and industrial testing for occupational safety and health that use very, very rapid pulse lasers to deliver microwave energy without the thermal, without the heat signature. And what this can do is disrupt a lot of the physiological structures and functions, primarily in conductive tissue, like nerve. But it also produces a vibration, which is those microwaves literally moving through the substance. And in some individuals, their physical structures of their inner ear and or the resonances of their bone structures evoke that as perceptible sound. So yeah, this technology is out there. It is at a point that's scalable and usable. And we think at this point that both an ultrasonic device as well as possibly some form of rapidly pulsed microwave seems to be the responsible entity. I wanted to just read more of a CIA statement from a spokesperson we uh, reached this morning, and it reads in part, as we have learned more, we have been able to identify very real medical, environmental, and technical factors that credibly explain a majority of reports, and many others were submitted out of an abundance of caution. Director Burns has said he has great confidence in the professionalism of the people who come from both the CIA and the wider intelligence community who are carrying out this mission in their commitment to objectivity and in the findings they have reached to date. Uh, that said, Nikki, I, we're getting um, some skepticism from some of our audience. I just, we just, I just saw a tweet. There's not enough evidence that Havana syndrome is real, other than a psychosomatic illness. The science is clear that there is no evidence. Nikki, can you just address that point? So the psychogenic hypothesis. Well, I'm going to level with you. I, I was originally brought into this project um, as someone with a specialty in. Um, conspiracy theories. My previous um, big show has been on QAnon. I've done national security and political reporting, but that was the the angle in which I was coming to it. I was I was very ready for the psychogenic hypothesis, this idea that the power of suggestion on the human brain is extremely capable of causing very real physical symptoms. Um, was the explanation, and it's a very compelling case. Certainly, the, there is evidence for it that, especially the way in which the early spread happened, they went through concentric circles of of communities, um, that that made a very plausible case. But it also, the more digging we did, the uh, more obvious it became that there are some pretty serious holes in the psychogenic theory. First of all, the level of secrecy um, with which the very first cases were were treated, um, as I think um, Dr. Hoffer, who treated the uh, original cases in Miami, says there's... um, if patient one and patient two don't know about each other, it's difficult to think patient two can have caught that in a psychogenic way. Certainly, 
once it's gone hugely to the public, I think there is a large element of, of psychogenic transfer in this. Um, but as I say, as we drilled down on the, the core cases, I think it, it became clear to us that there had been some kind of physical cause that the psychogenic hypothesis could not explain. Dr. Giordano, so do we know what role exposure to news stories can play in exacerbating mass psychogenic illness? Oh, sure. I mean, I think there are some individuals who are susceptible to this for a variety of reasons. Um, the worried well, for example, individuals who may be in similar situations in terms of their occupation or where they are environmentally, geographically, as well as other individuals who may have some prior conditions or pre-existing conditions. And this type of worry and stress could exacerbate those conditions. And then there are those individuals who are just very, very psychologically susceptible to these types of things because it resonates with a pre-existing set of ideas or beliefs. What's important to discern here is that what symptoms are, those are subjective, well, they could be all over the place. And there's a variety of things that cause symptoms. What we're seeing in those cases, specifically from Havana and key cases subsequently, is that there are objective clinical findings that simply cannot be faked, number one. And number two, are far beyond what we would expect to see in a functional neurological or a psychogenic or sociogenic disorder. The CIA, uh, Nikki, I want to pivot to talking just about the care. The CIA did release an invest, we've talked about this, this inspector general report late last year, criticizing how the organization handled medical care for the initial cases. Former CIA officer Mark Polymeropoulos told us he'd like to see accountability from the agency. Uh, can we go back to what the State Department and CIA have told you about how they plan to handle these cases moving forward, Nikki? There have been a lot of statements saying the usual stuff. We take this extremely seriously. We are here for our people, all of this kind of stuff. And I think what the sufferers would say is, all right, well, let's uh, let's put your money where your mouth is, really. Let's get to the point where we no longer have to fight to get admitted to, to Walter Reed or to one of the hospital programs. Um, and I think the Havana Act, as I said, helped make them feel like they were being taken seriously. But in terms of a, a life of neurological rehabilitation, a single cash payout feels like a lot, but actually doesn't really go a huge way to cover the kind of lifelong care that, that people now need. Um, and that's on top of when you start talking about officers working in a slightly grayer operation world, perhaps not directly CIA agents, but contractors. The people in, in those situations we've spoken to have had a, a appalling time trying to get care. And I'm afraid I, I don't see that. I don't see evidence that that situation is changing fast enough um, for for people to feel satisfied. And there are quite a few lawsuits um, going on to try and force the government to um, to give that kind of care. Dr. Giordano, the embassy in Havana opened back up to staff this month. We noted that at the beginning of this conversation. What concerns do you have about the health and safety of these employees as this CIA investigation of Havana syndrome remains ongoing? I think they're threefold. First is whether or not this site where these individuals are either going to be working or housed is indeed secure. And there have been some steps made with regard to detection of these types of technologies and their effects, as well as deterrence. So that's encouraging. The second is whether or not these individuals are pre-briefed as to the nature of risk. And that was one of the early concerns of the Department of State 
is that that didn't fall in the rubric of what their medical departments dealt with initially. And so now that needs to be at least revisited, if not revised, to be a little more specific about the potential risks and harms that are available on station. And then the third is that this may in fact represent a process and evolution. Those first devices may have utilized some form of ultrasonic and or microwave technology. But the question then is, is this persistent? And is this ongoing science and technology that can be used in these ways and what necessary safeguards and deterrents may be in place to be able to protect our people who may be in harm's way. Nikki, we're almost out of time, but quickly, I just wonder what you're watching for next here. Um, obviously, the the question all of this leads to uh, is that of attribution. Um, and no one has yet been caught in the act deploying one of these devices. But there's, uh, as I think we've alluded to earlier, one major geopolitical suspect in this kind of thing. Um, but also, there's the chance that since this technology has been shown to exist and is quite widespread, that actually there might be multiple people deploying devices like this. Um, and it's possible this will just continue to, to spread and become kind of a new normal. That's Nikki Wolf, journalist and host of the new investigative podcast, The Sound, Mystery of Havana Syndrome. It's a Project Brazen and PRX production. The first podcast of the eight-part series is available now wherever you get your podcasts. Also with me was Dr. James Giordano. He's a professor of neurology at the University of Georgetown and an expert in neurological warfare. Today's show was produced by Chris Remington and June Leffler and edited by Matthew Simonson. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Nyla Budu of Axios. Let's talk more soon. This is 1A.